everyone, and welcome to Defining Equity, a show meant to center and celebrate folks living at the margins. This week, we'll be having a conversation with Kip Kastner from the Maryland Department of Health, talking about issues of mental health and substance use, and learning about some ways in which they're working to address these from an HIV STI lens. By way of introductions, Kip Kastner has been involved in environmental causes, civil rights, adult literacy, and HIV since 1990. He received his master's degree in public policy from the University of Maryland in 1996. He currently serves as Chief HIV STI Integration and Capacity in the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene's Infectious Disease Prevention and Health Services Bureau. In his 20-plus years at the State Health Department, he has overseen HIV prevention community planning, including serving as community planning group chair from the State Health Department for four years, managed local planning efforts for Wire and White Part B resources to serve persons living with HIV-AIDS, and overseeing the design, implementation, and management of HIV prevention programs targeting injection drug users, same-gender-loving men, transgender people, people living with HIV, and high-risk heterosexual populations. Currently, he oversees the integration of sexual health programming and behavioral health. Kip enjoys developing curricula to break new ground in the field of HIV. He is author of RISE, or Rewriting Inner Scripts, a mental health intervention for African-American same-gender loving men, and non-racially identified RISE, an adaptation for all gay men. RISE and NRI, RISE, serve as protease inhibitors for the psyche, interrupting the repetition of internalized oppression and facilitating increased utilization of needed health services. He is also leading the establishment of syringe services programs and HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP capacity for the state health department. So without further ado, Kip, everyone, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Marcel. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, thank you for being on the show. Loved your introduction. Um, everyone on the show is always very impressive. Like every time I read their bios, I'm like, wow, like just so many, just all the experiences. Um, so I guess before we get started, like, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So we heard a little bit about, I guess, what you do professionally, but would you mind just maybe telling us a little bit about, say, where you grew up and, you know, maybe any kind of quick fun facts about you? Sure. Uh, so I was born and raised in Canada to American parents, so I have both citizenships, so a lot of mm-hmm. people are interested in um, getting married to me and moving to Canada at this time. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I am pretty assimilated, although I think that culturally I'm still um, uh, quite Canadian in a lot of respects. Um, Mm -hmm. I love trance music, I love dancing, I love cooking, I love gardening, Mm -hmm. I love travel. Those are some fun facts. Got you. Um, So we, you know, we heard a little bit about your work in in your bio, but would you mind just, I guess, telling us a little bit about your role at uh, the Maryland Department of Health and, you know, and also speaking a bit more as to sort of what got you into this work? So in my center, we do a wide range of things. We do workforce development and training. Uh, We do behavioral health integration. We do syringe services programs. We do PrEP. We do community mobilization and social marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, I was actually getting uh, my master's degree in public policy in, in environmental economics. Um, and I imagined that I would uh, be continuing to work in efforts to save the planet. Um, but I had this internship in public health and was really interested in HIV. And um, HIV actually felt less daunting than 
worrying about mm-hmm. the entire planet. We're very grand in our 20s about what we think we are going to accomplish. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but at, at literally, like, at least sort of domestic HIV or HIV in a state felt like a meal you had a better chance of chewing than the whole planet. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, luckily, I was able to sort of transition from public policy into public health. There's still a lot that's policy related, of course, in this work. Um, and I keep getting interesting things to do. So I keep mm-hmm. um, being here. Got you. Have you found ways to bridge those interests out of curiosity, mixing those conversations of like the environment with, with HIV? To a limited extent, I think that, uh, of course, there's a lot to be done in terms of health disparities and environmental justice. Um, mm-hmm. So to the extent that we locate uh, polluting plants in low-income neighborhoods who are least prepared to fight back, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there is absolutely overlap in the two fields. Uh, in terms of, you know, the broader systems of oppression that we, that are, you know, people try to manage in Mm -hmm. environmental work and in public health. Cool. So in the episode, you know, we, you know, we want to have a conversation around, um, you know, mental health and substance use. But I guess before diving into all of that, would you mind just, I guess, painting us a bit of a backdrop as to what the landscape currently looks like in the United States um, around mental health and substance use um, and perhaps some of the disparities that, imp- that inform some of the work that you do, how it impacts, you know, priority populations and things of that nature? Sure. Uh, well, so it's really a patchwork um, and it's really insufficient. So there's, we have too few psychiatrists, we have too few psychologists, uh, too few people have um, coverage for behavioral health treatment, the reimbursement that uh, is such that some providers opt completely out of even having you, you know, they won't even take insurance. So it becomes, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that many people cannot afford. There's silence and stigma uh, related to behavioral health disorders. There's cultural norms that affect who seeks behavioral health treatment and who utilizes it. Um, there's lack of affordability. So it's a uh, huge need, huge gap between uh, needs and uh, supply. Um, really, the ACA was an incredible um, opportunity for correcting that or correcting some of those issues um, with the Medicaid expansion and uh, making behavioral health uh, a part of the 10 essential health benefits so that on-exchange plans had to cover that, uh, having prescription mm-hmm. drugs in those benefits. Um, and so, the, you know, there's huge opportunity uh, with ACA, but we see that opportunity is, is partially realized but still very unfulfilled um, as, you know, almost half the states were improving, but, you know, we've still got many states that did not, not expand Medicaid, and then there's these uh, relentless... Um, efforts to undermine the um, individual market and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, reduce people getting into insurance and thus downstream is, you know, fewer people able to get into behavioral health treatments. I think that sort of the basic framework for our, I'm using air quotes, our population um, is that they all experience some type of oppression 
and oppression can have really predictable mental health outcomes for people, depression, anxiety, isolation, and um, just diminishing their sense of themselves. Uh, and so you see mm-hmm. people pick up different means of managing their feelings and coping, um, and, you know, sexual risk can, is one of those downstream consequences of all that. So uh, I think there's a pretty clear line from oppression to absorbing negative prevailing norms and, and potentially being at risk of feeling less mm-hmm. than. Mm-hmm. Uh, and behaving, behaving accordingly. And I can, I can imagine it's tricky because, you know, oppression is such a, like, macro um, concept and, like, just sort of relentless in its execution. Um, so, like, sort of, I guess, like, how, like, uh, like creating interventions that address something so large can certainly seem really, really daunting. Um I'm curious, like, did you always sort of approach it from that same framework of behavioral health, like looking at it from the lens of oppression and these sort of like external social factors? Yeah, more or less. I I think, uh, I mean, it was really instructive um, when national HIV behavioral surveillance began and the first cycle was with um, gay men uh, Mm -hmm. and Baltimore had outrageous rates of HIV infection among African-American same gender loving men. We did town halls to say, all right, well, what, what is that about? And it was very consistent um, feedback from people that, well, you know, you try managing both being a black man and a gay man in our culture. You know, have a shot at that and see what happens. You know, that there's, it's just a tremendous amount to navigate uh, either one of those, um, but coupled together uh, requires this sort of nimble Yes, and uh, being constantly aware of what the level of safety of the space you're in and, uh, you know, it's the amount of support available to you to cope with racism and homophobia depends on, uh, you know, where you are, who you're with, when you are, uh, where you are. It's just a tremendous amount of stress. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think that that those were made obvious or made explicit, uh, something that I was aware of but maybe hadn't named explicitly as a driving force in um, this larger issue. Got you. And I guess, how does your programming reflect sort of a similar intentionality around around those um, additional sort of social factors that come into play? Well, so in the era of um, behavioral interventions, um, we always sort of beefed up those things that came to us, like the Debbie's. We always beefed up them with some more content to make it more uh, explicitly about um, oppression that whatever the population was experiencing. So gender, um, homophobia, race, ethnicity, class. Um, we were really intentional about uh, adding sessions or beefing up activities or substituting activities so that Really, anyone that participated in those was given an opportunity to become more conscious of mm-hmm. um, those prevailing norms and how they may have uh, been affected by that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about RISE? I just find that really interesting, that intervention. Sure. 
Um, so rewriting in a script, uh, you know, has to do with the idea that you may have been handed a set of scripts based on your race and your gender um, and that um, might not be a match to your unique uh, spirit, and you may have needed to conform to those norms because they were strictly enforced um, mm-hmm. in childhood and adolescence and even as an adult, uh, and the consequences for failing to uh, subscribe to those or meet those standards and, and expectations and norms were uh, very, very high. Um, and that this all, you know, to the extent that you are um, being someone else rather than yourself, there's really tremendous consequence for the way you see yourself, the way you see other members of your um, your community, and how you treat them and yourself. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, we've had that movie um, Moonlight come out, which Mm -hmm. really you saw? Uh, I did. I did see it. Okay. Well, so that uh, is terribly helpful as an instructional tool if you want to teach um, how oppression is built into multiple systems and how people uh, attempt but can fail to navigate uh, Mm -hmm. their way through all those systems and that, you know, the product of that was an adult um, who absolutely uh, met the masculinity standard that was expected of him, um, but at the cost of his having no idea who he was his, his, when he gets the, in the latter part of the movie when he um, reunites with his uh, friend from adolescence. Uh, mm. His friend says, well, you know, who are you? And and he looks at him quizzically. <laughs> he, had, he couldn't even sort of, he didn't even have a context for the question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was so committed to, well, no, no, who I am was obviously an error, uh, but look how I've met, you know, I, I'm, I am now the standard that for which, you know, my missing the standard incurred so many costs. So you have someone that is has no idea who he is, um, and it's a tragic uh, demonstration of the impact um, of these forces uh, mm-hmm. as they impede the d- development of positive self-identity for people navigating all the oppression. So rise is an opportunity for people to um, have the light switched on with regard to all these topics and say, you know what, it's okay if you, along the way, uh, through multiple um, instances of trauma and oppression, were subscribed to some of these negative beliefs. Like, that's, that's an okay thing that happens um, and we're going to spend some time uh, helping you be uh, tuned in to those and then mm-hmm. give you a whole bunch of skills to interrupt the replication of those tapes or those scripts um, from playing mm-hmm. onward uh, in the rest of your life. And then it looks at, uh, gives people a chance to see what have been the patterns in their um, romantic encounters, if there's a particular person that they've been dating for years in multiple incarnations, uh, like mm-hmm. to look for the theme, to look for the through line, um, and to be- begin to investigate 
where that came from and, and why that is, uh, again, so that they can be mindful and conscious. Um, and they may mm-hmm. choose the same thing again, but they may be sort of liberated to um, make decisions that are more in keeping with what they truly want and not mm-hmm. about acting out um, a, uh, a narrative that was handed to them or that going that was established because of an early child. Right. That's interesting. Huh. That's really, and I guess what has the reception been like from, from folks who've gone through it? Oh, it's so positive. It's so uh, mm-hmm. really moving and rewarding to hear. Um, we're trained as men to not seek help, and we're trained as men not to have any problems. Um, so there's mm-hmm. always, not always, but in, in many instances, there's some initial resistance to the whole idea, um, and it mm-hmm. takes some time to get to push past it. But then when people are in a safe space with their peers and the facilitator is strong, then they feel sort of empowered and encouraged to take a look and mm-hmm. uh, start to, to be doing that work or be in, uh, have that work be amplified or accelerated through their participation in RISE. Some people only come to RISE after um, being in addictions treatment. They've already made some sort of commitment to change. Uh, mm-hmm. And so those people are sometimes more uh, ready to jump in and start to just look at why. Um, but sort of more across the board, uh, rise participants, um, there's this sort of initial resistance and then a real um, gratitude for uh, having the, their consciousness raised about the potential impacts of oppression on themselves uh, and the encouragement to work to, uh, to end that, to bring that to an end in their own heart. Uh, and to mm-hmm. set their own pathway moving forward. Got you. And I would love to hear about how sort of just all of the above, like all of the interventions, the frameworks that you've mentioned um, up to this point, how they've been able to support um, people who use drugs in particular. Um, sure. Okay. Well, so let's see. In hmm, We have a very negative, of course, history with regard to substance use epidemics in this country. So we had a war on drugs, and we lost up mass uh, proportions of black men. Um, Mm -hmm. So now we're in a different moment where the perception of who is affected in the opioid epidemic is is different, um, and we're having a different cultural response. Um, But it's still... uh, We're still running up against barriers related to substance use, specifically as we go out and try to get the syringe services program stood up in counties where they never imagined uh, having that intervention because that was a, you know, a big mm-hmm. city intervention. Um, and, you know, we don't have, and I'm using air quotes, those people uh, in our county. So uh, mm-hmm. tying the things together, adverse childhood experiences um, is another way of talking about the rise content and about this mapping from oppression through to risk behavior and outcomes. Um, So adverse childhood experiences has been one of the frames that we've used to get buy-in for efforts that target people who use drugs who are still using drugs and who may or may not have declared Mm -hmm. an intention to stop using drugs. 
because, you know, we have this thing where, you know, well, there's drugs, there's people who should and shouldn't be using drugs and using air quotes again. So we've got, uh, you know, I'll still talk to people that say, well, she's from a good family. Well, what is a good family? And what, you know, so their code for, Mm -hmm. you know, race and class. Um, So we counter that with, well, uh, you know, adverse childhood experiences can happen to anybody. Um, social determinants of health may raise the likelihood that you've had ACEs, but really ACEs is a frame that lets everybody in to the compassion space. Where part of getting syringe services programs stood up is demanding really that the compassion frame be widened beyond these people whose, whose addiction came, began in a doctor's office with uh, you know, an opioid prescription and ended up inherent with heroin, we have to widen that compassion frame to include mm-hmm. everybody that is dealing with heroin or that, and regardless of their pathway to where they are. Um, so mm-hmm. the state of the change and adverse childhood experiences, particularly uh, as we've talked about in terms of rise, uh, have been useful for us as tools for getting buy-in, for doing things that meet people in those stages of change that are prior to their being uh, treatment-seeking. Mm, got you. Interesting, interesting. And I, I would love to hear just like, you know, you're talking a lot about issues that in a lot of ways, um, I mean, we struggle with as a as a society in in addressing and even like acknowledging the actual existence of. So I'm curious to hear sort of how you've been able to move the needle forward in the work that you've been doing um, and how you've been able to deal with um, any challenges or pushback that might have arisen along the way, or perhaps are still still present? <laughs> Gosh, well, let's see. Uh, first, within our own um, within our own world, uh, I think it's been important to make sure that within the HIV prevention and treatment community, we're on board with the importance mm-hmm. of behavioral health treatment. So we're now in an era where our approach is very biomedical. Um, and mm-hmm. really nothing, nothing derails adherence either to PrEP or to HIV treatment like an untreated, untreated behavioral health disorder. So mm-hmm. I think first to sort of making sure that within our own world, we're really clear about the importance of screening uh, for behavioral health disorders and referring uh, to them so that people have a much greater shot at actually, you know, taking their medication every day, whether that's to prevent or to treat um, HIV. In the sort of broader uh, world, I would say a couple of things. Um, we put together an integrative screener that looks at addiction, like substance use behaviors, mental health disorders, and sexual risk behaviors, and then um, got it out to uh, providers in all those domains and with the encouragement and training mm-hmm. that they use it so that, you know, mental health providers are screening for addictions. Addictions providers are screening for mental health. Uh, behavioral health providers are screening for sexual risk behaviors because it's all, everyone's success as a provider is going to depend on um, the success for the client in those other domains. Right? So they have to be mindful of those things and actually include them as a part of mm-hmm. how they develop a, a care plan. Um, we've gotten some resources from SAMHSA to do uh, work in addictions, HIV testing, 
um, but also an intervention called sexual health in recovery. Sexual health in recovery is mm-hmm. a, an intervention for people who are have already made the decision to reduce or discontinue using substances. It takes aim specifically at their sex drug linked behaviors. So a lot of folks get into the habit of always having sex drunk or high. Um, maybe their sexual debut was under the influence. Uh, maybe they established a pattern over time. Um, we use substances in our culture to get better sexual outcomes all, the, mm-hmm. all over the place. We don't, we don't have to have a substance use disorder to understand and experience that. We may right. use a particular substance to get closer to what we something uh, sexual experience that's better in some regard. Um, mm-hmm. And but this is a particularly challenging issue for people who want to quit using substances if then desire itself becomes a relapse trigger because they've not had sex over and they were using substances um, in some way with regard to sexuality. They have got body image stuff, they've got trauma, they've got shame. You know, there's a long list of things uh, for which people might be using substances in conjunction with sex. So sexual mm-hmm. health and recovery is an intervention designed to help people um, get buried out from sexual shame, to identify their own patterns, and to be supported in thinking through how they're going to navigate sexuality in sobriety. <clears throat> um, so that's an intervention that we have been doing in um, the 12 jurisdictions in Maryland where we have the most mm-hmm. background prevalence of HIV. We have a training called Suspending Sexual Judgment, um, which we offer to mm-hmm. providers that are doing sexual health and recovery, but we make it available to other folks. Um, particularly, we require it actually of our PrEP providers um, because now they're really, you know, if you're going to do PrEP, you need to be able to talk about sex, right? So, um, right. Sexual Judgment is a two-day provider training where people get an opportunity to be aware of their own sexual biases and judgments that they're bringing to work and which they need to leave at the front door when they go to work. Um, there's chances to practice uh, judgment-free um, conversations with clients where, you know, clients may say anything and they're watching your face, they're listening to your paraverbals, they're on you, they know how you're reacting to that and they are going to return or not based on your responses um, in many cases. So uh, sending sexual judgment has been important. We're not in the business of changing anyone's values, but we need you to know what your values are so that then those don't get acted out in the medical office and they don't um, push people away from mm. uh, a service that can prevent them from getting HIV. As I mentioned, we're in the, right now planning training for uh, opioid partners on uh, a lot of things that we uh, have found help to grease the wheels for harm reduction approaches, uh, the social determinants of health, adverse childhood experiences, the stages of change, and then, of course, just harm reduction. Mm. Got you. Cool. And I, I guess this kind of goes without saying, but, you know, like the show's called Defining Equity. So, you know, we're always about uh, talking about health equity and how that intersects with every sort of pillar of society and our, you know, our everyday interactions. So I would, I'd be curious to hear your personal definition of health equity and how the work you've been doing has sort of catered to that definition. 
Sure. Okay. Well, so, I mean, I guess it's really just equality of opportunity um, that we all have our own personal mix of strengths and talents and challenges, um, but we ought to have the same opportunity to fly as high as we can, you know, that we shouldn't have a public public education system that is so extraordinarily unfair where you've Mm -hmm. got this incredible disparity in the amount of money spent per pupil based on a zip code and a census tract. It's just um, appalling. Uh, And so many things are downstream of, you know, your lived environment um, as a child and Mm -hmm. what what you had to navigate in terms of health risk back to that environmental piece and whether there was uh, access to healthy food and affordable food, whether there were um, museums or whether there were liquor stores. You know, there's just... Uh, there's such horrible disparity in what people um, come along with, and there, there's nothing close to quality of opportunity. So mm. I, I would say it's equality of opportunity. Well, so I have the privilege of um, having a team of idealists uh, in my shop, and so there's just tremendous passion and compassion for the populations um, of, that we're the most worried about. Um, so really without having to try very hard, really compassion is the theme that's woven through all the trainings that we put on. So, you know, I've used uh, social determinants and adverse childhood experiences and so on, but I mean, really, that's about, explaining those things to people is about fostering compassion for the people that we're trying to serve. Um, mm. So I would say that all, everything we do that is about training is about fostering compassion. Um, our programming, frankly, is pretty much all targeted to populations that have uh, some sort of a challenge or multiple challenges. Um, trans and gender women doing sex work, people using substances, people trying to stop using substances, same general women of color that are um, at the lower end of the income spectrum, at least here in Baltimore. Um, you know, so there's, I think in terms of what we do and, and where we target it, it's all about uh, changing um, that dynamic mm. of health, I believe. Got you, got you. And Assuming, so this I guess somewhat more of like an imaginative question, but assuming like a future without like resource constraints with, you know, favorable political will, like no, essentially no barriers, um, what would be the ideal manner in which as a country we address behavioral health? Um, and similarly, what would sort of be the most ideal way f- for I guess for your work to continue, so so two parts: how we address it as a country, and then also how your work would evolve, assuming that we moved into a space where, um, you know, barriers weren't necessarily a thing. Yeah, well, it would be delightful if there was not a stigma uh, associated with having a behavioral health disorder, because you know, some very very large proportion of people um, are going to have one if they don't have one now, 
at some point in their lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. It would be great for Medicaid to be in the Medicaid expansion to be everywhere. It would be nice for all the drama to be resolved related to whether people have health insurance or not. Um, we need, obviously, more behavioral health providers, um, mm-hmm. so perhaps shifts in reimbursement would help with that. Um, something really concrete, I think, that is actually quite doable. I would love to see SAMHSA funding small group interventions with individuals that share some part of their identity to do things, you know, have have it be like a rise, but for all of our populations. Give mm. them a place to um, to start to think about issues of oppression, how oppression is internalized, uh, and whether it has impacted them. And if so, some skills and tools around turning down the volume um, mm-hmm. on those on those uh, on that internalization of oppression and sort of liberating their own voice. Um, because I think that and without those, people are going to, those barriers to behavioral child health treatment will remain in place. You know? mm. If you don't really, if you kind of haven't been nudged to look beneath the surface um, and you're kind of doing all right and you've always had the same uh, baseline experience because you've been feeling badly for 20 years, you may or may mm. not like find your way into behavioral health treatment. I think that those um, those small group opportunities are what help people be a little bit clearer that there's a thing there to mm-hmm. uh, call in for them to do some work and that those are going to really be a bridge for people into any behavioral mm-hmm. health that they might need. Uh, it'd be nice if we had some sort of structured opportunity in our culture, like, say, when you go to get your driver's license, that you have to view, you have to be screened using our integrated screener or some parallel that's the ours, but you have to get screened for behavioral health disorders and sexual health stuff. That you should mm-hmm. have an, an HIV test, you should have extra genital STI test, particularly when you look at where the STIs are in our age groups. Um, and if you are, you know, screen positive for a behavioral health disorder, you should be offered a Referral. You may not take it, but you at least are been signaled that there's some something there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I don't know what other sort of cultural moments that everyone has, or nearly everyone else has, um, to just check in on all of those topics as people sort of move into uh, early adulthood. Mm. That would that would be my recommendation. Gosh, that's that is so interesting. I've quite I've never heard anyone make that make that line of comparison. So there's room, there's room. Um, so thank you so much, Kip, for for all of this. This has been really, really interesting hearing about um, you know sort of the work that you've been doing, the interventions that y'all have been able to come up with. Um, and yeah, I just I really love. I mean, everything that you just said, but like, I mean, certainly, especially the rise piece is definitely kind of replaying itself in my mind because, yeah, I think that that's, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that like many of the scripts that were internalized as even, for example, like as, as men, as like a privileged group in society are like antithetical to like health and wellness and even like a comprehensive sense of self-understanding. So I just, I love that that's work that you're addressing. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's really, really interesting, but, um, 
I guess as we as we wrap up, do you have any any final words, any final sentiments you'd like to share with um, folks listening at home? Um, well, I did actually just want to add one more thing to the rise thing. Uh, it's just really important to me that everyone be really clear that I have no interest in building victim identities for people. Um, the, the whole intention is is we're very resilient. Uh, I mm-hmm. just want people to be to be scaffolded enough to where they're bold enough to look back and see their own wounds so that then they can chart a path forward past them to leave it mm-hmm. behind. I'm just grateful for this opportunity. Uh, it's The work is so dense and so fast-paced that uh, it's unusual, really, frankly, to get to zoom out for a minute and look at it in a broader context. So I'm always grateful for those types of Oh, great. Thank you again so much for, for this interview. And yeah, this was, this was wonderful. So thank you. Thank you.